they have like a, a saying in Oxford, it's um, fortune and glory, and then everybody else says, shame and disgrace. <laughs> You're listening to The Cosmic Cast. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Cosmic Cast, brought to you by the Earth and Solar System team at the University of Manchester. Your host today, it's me, Marissa Lowe, joined by John Pernay Fisher. Hello. And Tom Harvey. Hiya. And our special guest this week is ice giant atmosphere detective, Naomi Rogerny. Hiya. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thank you. Excited to be here. Very good background, Lucy. Very on hobby. My bays. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so you're in the third year of your PhD now? Yes, just coming to the end of third year in September. It feels like it's like coming really, really quickly. So, um, And you study um, planets right behind you there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Uranus and Neptune. I study their atmospheres. Wonderful. Would you like to tell us a bit of background on your project then? Yeah, so my project um, is, uh, it was made because... I have a lot of data from the Spitzer Space Telescope, which is a telescope that's usually used for uh, astronomy, um, so like looking deep into um, the universe or whatever, because it's in infrared. And um, they had this data back from 2007, and they needed to uh, look at it a bit more closely and, and have a look at how the, the planets change as they rotate. Um, so that's what I'm doing with my project. I'm, I'm using the, that Spitzer data to look at how specifically Uranus is rotating and then I'm going to also look at Neptune uh, towards the end of the project and it's all in preparation for the James Webb Space Telescope uh, which is obviously hopefully getting launched next year. (laughs) We'll see. Yeah that's really cool. So how how much do we know about the atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune? Um, Very little actually. Um, There's not that much to read. (laughs) which is good for me, I suppose, but um, <laughs> um, it also means that a lot of the stuff that I'm finding out is stuff people don't know about, and a lot of the models that I'm using are um, based on other planets um, and other instruments, etc. So um, this is kind of all very groundbreaking stuff. Um, so it, it's really exciting. Uh, it's just kind of unknown, so we don't know what we're what we're looking at. So basically, the end of my thesis is going to be: we still don't know what we're looking at, but uh, we have all of this information to try and understand it later on when we understand more about the planets. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what are the atmospheres of those planets like? Um, obviously, they're just completely unimaginable compared to what we have on Earth. Um, so, you know, what what's their composition and mm-hmm. yeah. So they're <laughs> they're um they're kind of weird. They're really really super cold. Um, so uh, Uranus actually has the coldest atmosphere in the solar system, um, and uh, they're blue because they have a lot of methane in them. So that makes them different from uh, the gas giants uh, Saturn and uh, Jupiter. They have a similar composition to Saturn and Jupiter, but um, the slightly smaller size and obviously the temperature difference. Um, and, and then the high methane content means that we have very different processes going on. Um, uh, so like when methane gets uh, lofted into the upper stratosphere, it gets broken down by the sun and it, it creates all of these uh, interesting 
uh, photochemicals uh, like uh, acetylene and uh, you know hydrocarbons um, that we can look at and it can tell us more about how the atmosphere is circulating and uh, uh, and what's happening deep below that where we can't see that kind of thing. Because I guess um, these planets are quite far away. So how sort of well resolved are the spectra? Like how much? Sort of <laughs> well, geographical... that's the fun. <laughs> I have zero spatial resolution. So what I'm looking at is uh, so Spitzer is used for exoplanets a lot. Yeah. Um, uh, where you literally look at a point of light and you take just that point of light and then you split it into its spectrum. So all you're seeing is one picture of the planet. And that mm. is what I do for Uranus as well. Even okay. though it's much, much closer than exoplanet, it's basically the same resolution, mm -hmm. just slightly brighter um, spectrum. So we can get a little bit more detail spectrally, but spatially it's exactly the same. Okay, yeah, that must be quite challenging then. So then is it quite easy then using some of the spectra to then sort of go down into the atmosphere and like how how do you sort of then look at compositional changes like that? That sounds quite, quite cool. Um, so we use a model um, called a uh, optimal estimation retrieval model and we, it's called Nemesis and it was developed by Oxford. Um, yeah, that's they have an excellent crazy, acronym. That's, that's crazy brilliant. names. Yeah. I know it's a really contrived acronym. I can't remember what it stands for. The <laughs> uh, non. No, I, honestly, I can't remember. It's non-linear something something. Oh, it's got to be contrived. Something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's named after the goddess of chaos or luck or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm terrible. They have like a, a saying in Oxford for when people use nemesis. It's um, fortune and glory. And then everybody else says, shame and disgrace. <laughs> Excellent banter. I don't know, I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, it must be an Oxford thing. <laughs> but yeah, we use that to look at the spectrum. And then judging by where each uh, like emission peak and mm. absorption trough, where all of them are, um, and at each wavelength, we can then think, okay, so at this wavelength, we should be sensitive to this uh, species and uh, that chemical species. And this should be at this point, like mm. this altitude in the atmosphere. So if you put all of these billions of lines together, um, then you can kind of figure out what's happening uh, in the uh, different temperature profiles and also in the temperature as well. Wow. That's really cool. And then can you track it, I guess, as the seasons progress or is that too uh, complicated? So the data that I have is only really for 2004 to 2007 for Uranus mm. and for Neptune it's 2004 to 2006, I think. And um, that means that we don't really have a seasonal change mm. to look at um, for this data. Um, obviously, we can, uh, we can compare it to other data sets but for Spitzer specifically we're only looking at very short-term changes so mm. um, we're looking at the difference between one side of the planet compared to the other side of the mm -hmm. planet as it's rotating yeah that's really the days obviously are only like 17 hours like 16 17 hours for both planets and then um, whereas the year for Uranus is uh, 84 years 84 earth years and then for, for Neptune it's double that so mm. Wow. Oh. Um, how often were the images taken? You said you had them over, you know, two or three, a two or three year time period, but were they taken every few weeks or months or? Um, so for the 2007 data, they're only taken over three days. So 
all we're looking at is literally a snapshot of the of the planet and all we're looking at is one side of the planet at one time um, compared to the other side of the planet less than like eight hours later so that's really cool you can get such all this information to then just our single profile it's amazing so yeah it's, like, so, it's a great piece of instrumentation the Spitzer Space Telescope it's um it's a lot more powerful than people know um obviously it's used for really far away things so mm. we don't usually use it for things like this so it's really exciting to be able to use it for yeah and you mentioned there wasn't much data then so there's just not been many uh, missions uh, or, or telescopes that have been pointed at uh, these outer bodies or yeah unfortunately uranus and neptune are incredibly neglected they mm. are um uh yeah for some reason people don't don't want to know uh, i think it's because they're so far away mm -hmm. Uh, so any, uh, so, you know, Cassini has been to Saturn and uh, uh, Juno and uh, Juice and stuff are, are going to, or are at Jupiter or going to Jupiter, but it takes a lot more money. Obviously money is the, the big thing uh, to get, and time to get to the outer planets. Yeah. So um, that's why it's much harder to yeah. motivate people to want to look at. Uranus and Neptune because there's no goal like why are we looking at them we're not even visiting them so mm. we're kind of ramping up the hype now you know like um trying to get people excited because eventually we are going to go to these planets mm -hmm. that's really cool oh, did New Horizons uh, go past um these bodies on its way to Pluto or uh that's a good question I don't think they it did it's only had one visit um, and that was from Voyager 2. Mm, and that's the uh, pictures behind you, I guess. Yes, yeah, yeah. These are the Voyager 2. Like, this is what everybody thinks of when they think of these planets because it's literally the, the only, like, really nice high-def pictures mm. we have. And, and this one, uh, wait, this one was taken in 1986. Um, and this one was 1989. Um, so, you know, the high definition, this was, like, the cutting-edge tech of the time. Um, so yeah, this is as good as it gets at the moment. But yeah, that's. I guess you must be quite envious of all the pictures of like the moon, like the one John has behind him. Yeah, true. <laughs> but if they were closer, I probably wouldn't be as interested. You know, like I've, I'm mm. interested in these planets because we haven't been to them, mm. and I want to know about them. But you know, this is the these are the planets of my generation because mm -hmm. it's going to be my, like I'm going to be the the scientist that you know helps with getting to them. So, yeah, no, they're really cool. Like I remember specifically those pictures of, of Neptune just being fascinated by them as a child. I mean, mm -hmm. so this is quite a basic question, I guess. So they're, they're known as ice giants. So I guess does that imply there's some sort of frozen surface at some depth? So there's a lot of debate as to why they're called ice giants and whether they should even be called rock giants because mm -hmm. nobody actually knows what's inside them. We don't have enough information because um, to be able to know what's going on inside a planet or even guess, you need to have an orbiter really to, to mm. go around it and measure the gravitational field and stuff. Um, so we haven't had that. So everything we're going on is just educational, um, educated guesses. Um, so what they think's inside is like a gas layer. Um, and then uh, below that, as things squeeze down and, and things get... Uh, much denser and therefore hotter you end up with uh, a liquid layer but this isn't mm -hmm. like normal liquid it's like um a super critical liquid which is like not a liquid or a gas it's like both of them mm -hmm. and then 
as you get hotter and hotter and denser and denser, there's, there's maybe a, this ice layer. And that ice layer is not a normal ice. Again, it's something called super ionic ice, um, which they've actually managed to create in a, in a lab. Uh, now, so they know it's a real thing that happens at really high pressures and temperatures. Um, and it's like this weird black hot ice, um, like water ice that is, um, uh, I can't even remember like what the the definition of it is, but it's like black and hot and doesn't exist. Uh, like it's more like an ice plasma type thing. It's okay. just so strange. That's crazy. That's really cool. Yeah. So are there other data sets that you're kind of able to compare with or is it comparing with, you know, data from other planets and how, how does it work in that sense? Um, so we do compare to other planets. So a lot of the stuff that I'm using is using um, uh, kind of the defaults for Cassini Sears when, when they're looking at um, uh, Saturn. Uh, so we compare to that, but we also compare to ground-based studies um, and also comparisons to the Voyager 2 data, which is some of the most reliable data that we have. Um, so it did take some uh, pictures uh, like these ones and it mm -hmm. uh, took some uh, spectra that went past and stuff like that. So we can look at uh, some things and compare them, but obviously we don't have much to do that with. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. That's some really famous data, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. There's so many papers out there on it. Most of the papers for uh, Uranus and Neptune include at least part of the, the Voyager mm. 2 data. Yeah. I think what I love about these old data sets as well is just how relevant they are still today as well. And that's mm. amazing that we can still gain new insights by looking at such old data. Yeah, definitely. Because people are still like uh, taking the raw data and reanalyzing them and finding mm. out new things. So yeah. yeah, it's very important. And imagine what we could do when we have a mission there and get all of this new data. It's going to keep us fed for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned before that some of your work might contribute into what the James Webb Space Telescope will be eventually studying. Um, yeah, would you mind expanding a bit on that and saying, saying how this might feed in? Yeah, so the James Webb, I love the James Webb. For some reason, I just really enjoy the concept of it. So it's like this giant telescope that's um, it's like 6.5 meters in diameter, the mirror um, in diameter, and uh, hopefully it's getting... Uh, launched yeah, in 2021 and this hopefully. is a Hubble replacement basically yes um so the yeah the the scientific successor to the Hubble mm -hmm. um so it's mostly the hype is about like around the James Webb is about it looking really deep into the universe because it's in this infrared wavelength instead of being invisible like Hubble is um so the the more red you get into the infrared the further you can look uh, out because you can look at redshift and stuff mm. I'm sure you guys know about all this stuff anyway the uh, so what we can do with that is all of the Spitzer data is in this mid infrared wavelength and it's what gives us really good uh, like compositional data for uh, planets planet at planetary atmospheres and it's uh, it means that we can look at the planetary atmospheres using the James Webb and a lot not a lot of people know that the James Webb is going to be used for solar system science mm. um, but it's going to be used from anywhere from uh, Kuiper Belt objects and like small bodies as well as uh, the ice giants uh, it can even look at Jupiter Saturn and even Mars uh, as oh, long really? as they're careful not to blind it yeah yeah that's awesome mm. that's so strange though that that's going to be 
hopefully the next set of data that we'll be getting about the outer solar system. Yeah, it's going to be really, really good data as well, hopefully. Um, as long as it works properly, it mm -hmm. will be. Uh, so you, at the moment, you either have to look at uh, spatial resolution or spectral resolution. So all of my stuff is high spectral resolution because mm -hmm. I have zero spatial resolution. And then you see ground-based telescopes have a lot of uh, spatial resolution. So they'll take a really beautiful picture, but it'll only be at one uh, wavelength. So mm -hmm. zero spectral resolution or maybe mm -hmm. a couple of uh, wavelengths. Um, so James Webb is different because it will be able to look with both spectral and spatial resolution. So what mm -hmm. you're doing is you're taking a picture and then each pixel in that picture is going to be a spectra with mm -hmm. multiple spectral points in it. And they call these pixels spaxels, which is fun. <laughs> That's going to generate a huge amount of data then, isn't it? I hope yeah. they've got some extra hard drives in. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be huge. I can't even remember. Oh, they did say this in a meeting once, how big it was. And it was a crazy amount that they were sending back every, yeah. um, every second. So yeah, it's going to be great. Yeah, because like, so I guess because um, also I guess James Webb is a bit further away, isn't it than it is. uh, than Hubble? So I suppose that's going to improve. Because does, does does Hubble suffer from um, atmospheric effects and stuff, or is it still far away enough that actually it's I'm not still quite sure. Dark? Good, I'm not sure whether mm -hmm. it does, but um, the the problem with uh, James Webb is that it's in the mid infrared, which is where heat is. So right. any any kind of heat radiation coming from any object is going to interfere with mm. uh, it sensing. Uh, whatever it's looking at yeah uh, so it has to go really really far away from earth to get away from earth's mm. heat um and then it has that massive shield on the back which is the size of a tennis ball court um a tennis court and and then uh that is what shields it from the sun's rays oh, yeah. to stop it from heating up from that so and is this this heat effect why people can't really do ground-based observations or meaningful ground-based observations of Exactly. It's, it's yes, really, yeah. really incredibly difficult. I mean, yeah. they are getting better and better at ground-based. Um, so you do get these beautiful pictures in mid-infrared now that, I mean, they're, they're still very grainy, but you can make out the planet and you can even see the rings. And that's recently in the last, oh, wow. uh, in the last two years that that's been done. So my yeah. colleague actually was one of the ones that managed to observe the, um, the rings in the mid-infrared for the first time. So. That's amazing. Yeah. So what made you decide that ice giants were going to be your point of passion for a PhD? Wonderfully alliterative. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't know I wanted to do ice giants um, until I saw the project, but I did want to know I wanted to, I did know that I wanted to do uh, atmospheres, planetary atmospheres, because I wanted to do um, meteorology. Oh, okay, let's start with my undergraduate was in astrophysics, um, well, physics with astrophysics at Leicester. But I hated astrophysics <laughs> by the end of it. I like, could not stand it. Um, so I managed to do as many, uh, as few astrophysics courses as possible and managed to do loads of planetary uh, science courses. Realized I really enjoyed meteorology and like Earth weather and stuff and mm. climate. Um, but then uh, went away for a long time and decided actually I do enjoy space maybe not astrophysics, but I do like space. So I wanted to kind of combine the meteorology with the space. And that's when I realized that planetary atmospheres was a thing. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So were there many projects to do with that when you were seeking a project? Yeah, quite a few. So um, uh, 
probably I applied to about five or six places. Um, a lot of places do Mars atmosphere. Um, mm. And I wasn't as interested in Mars because um, I like weird things. And Mars <laughs> is like, uh, everybody does Mars, you know? I'm a hipster. <laughs> I Planetary can't handle, hipster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't handle when everybody else thinks something's cool. <laughs> okay. Okay, well, it's okay. I'm going to put you on the spot now. Which is your favorite out of the two, Uranus or Neptune? I always get this question and it's so hard because I love Neptune. I used to love Neptune. It was my favorite planet growing up. And I guess because of the color, like my hair is kind of sort of probably more Uranus colored now, but it started off Neptune colored. Um, yeah, so I really, really like Neptune, but actually all of my research recently has been Uranus. So mm -hmm. I've kind of developed a soft spot for how weird it is. Mm -hmm. it's like the Cause, weirdest planet because what's so, going on with its rotation again it, it's weird isn't yeah, it it's, it um, rotates on its side right um so that's why my project is so important so um the data in 2007 is at its equinox which is the only time where you can view it side on and actually see it rotating otherwise you're just looking at its pole yeah yeah that's cool hmm. that's so strange to imagine though yeah. even when you're describing the structure of these things it's just so different from anything we're used to it took me a solid month of the PhD to finally figure out why I couldn't, I could only look at it in 2007. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah. Were you no, there thinking, there's something wrong with this data? Yeah, well, I was just like, why? I don't get it. I don't get it. And then I was like, oh, it's on its side. <laughs> Duh. Um, yeah, so is there a big, um, <clears throat> is there a big community of scientists looking at the ice giants then? Or as we said, there's not that much data to go around. So are they as neglected as you said? Yeah, um, it's getting better. So recently there was a, uh, a meeting in London at the Royal Society. For, oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of um, ice giant scientists to, uh, to go to to discuss the future of ice giant science and hopefully um, try and uh, figure out what we need and what we want from a mission. Mm. Uh, and that had over 300 people in attendance um there's a big picture on the ice giant twitter it's called uh at uh, uh, icy giants i think mm -hmm. is the twitter handle and um yeah that's a uh, super interesting that uh, was super interesting to be a part of um mm -hmm. my supervisor was the one who organized the whole thing so i got to be involved quite quite a lot so it's nice yeah because I, I guess it's going to be important to put then exoplanets in, in their context as well. I mean, we have this class of planets here in the solar system, so it makes sense to try and get as much of them as we can if we're then going to yeah. think outside the solar system. Yeah, I think that's one of the main um, tags that we use as ice giant scientists. Like, if you don't know the ice giants of our own solar system, then we definitely don't understand the ones that are out in the mm -hmm. far reaches <clears throat> of the universe, you know? So yeah. um, uh, using our solar system as our laboratory to yeah. kind of experiment on these ones to try and figure out what's going on is important. Because are their formation then similar to uh, Jupiter and Saturn or are they fundamentally quite different in the way that they were built in the early solar system? It's all still up in the air. Nobody really knows what mm. the, uh, why Uranus and Neptune are so different from mm. from Saturn and, and Jupiter. Um, there's theories going around that Uranus was created in uh, in like inner like more 
uh, like further towards us than yeah. we thought and then it migrated outwards mm -hmm. and that's why it's on its side and and all sorts of things so uh, really it's just educated guesses at this point yeah yeah um, obviously with scientists who study say the moon and mars a big approach to use is oh let's take this principle from earth and try and apply it to them how much can you do that with say processes that happen in earth's atmosphere for the outer planets actually quite a lot the whole retrieval theory thing comes from like meteorology done on earth i mean we, obviously we have to uh, use remote sensing uh, slightly differently, but the whole process of remote sensing was created using satellites looking at Earth. So um, it's pretty it's pretty integral to kind of keep attached to the meteorology community. Uh, otherwise, you end up just reinventing the wheel all the time, mm. and that does happen a lot in science, where people yeah. are kind of like, "We have an idea," and then somebody's done it like twenty years ago. So it's important to try and stay current yeah that's amazing i would never have thought there would have been yes yeah, still such applicable links uh, to earth then that's amazing yeah a lot of the books that i read are um uh, like earth books mm. about meteorology so yeah that's brilliant mm. so i i guess um since all your data has already been collected i suppose this has lockdown affected um any of your phd then significantly or um, I'm fortunate to be able to work from home because all of my stuff is uh, data-based. Um, I, I just make programs and, and analyze data on, online and stuff. So I don't really have to worry about being in a lab or anything like that. It's, um, so nothing's really been affected. I was meant to go to NASA this uh, summer uh, to do a... Uh, a couple of weeks with some colleagues uh, using the James Webb simulator. Um, but obviously I can't do that anymore, which sucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, hopefully I'll get an opportunity at some point in the future to visit. Uh, yeah. I've been to NASA JPL before, but I've never been to NASA Goddard, which is where I was meant to go. Mm -hmm. yeah, you, can, you can reschedule it for them. Hopefully, hopefully we'll see. Um, My PhD will be over by then. <laughs> you know, so sad. Um, you know, we're going to be doing it online though, so it's not all lost. It's just I don't get a cool trip to NASA Goddard. But, yeah. <laughs> Boo-hoo, boo first world problems. <laughs> um, so you said before that you had a bit of a break between your undergrad and starting the PhD. Um, what did yeah. you do at that time? Um, so uh, weirdly I left uh, straight after university so I, I got my MPhys in physics astrophysics from Leicester mm. and then uh, moved straight out to Shanghai China for uh, an internship in financial services oh wow and yeah yeah I was like yeah I'm gonna be rich and then I did it for about a month and I was like nope this is not for me <laughs> yeah hated it um so uh but i loved china it was a, an amazing place especially shanghai it's a great city um so decided to stay learn a bit of chinese um and then eventually um, did a load of random jobs like um worked in a bar and um i was like a bouncer type person for a while <laughs> and um uh, did loads of really weird stuff i was a dj so strange 
and then um, and then I realized I still enjoyed physics and so for the last three years I actually became a physics teacher uh, like got a small qualification in teaching and became a physics teacher and tutor for um, the last three years and the last two years I became a full-time teacher. What made you um, think in the first place I'm going to move out and get into finance. What was the draw there? Literally, it was money. I, I used to be quite like financially motivated. And then after about a month, I realized I'm, I'm not financially motivated at all. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, decided against it. I am more motivated by n knowledge. And once I'd learned everything in, that I needed to to do the job, I was bored. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, because yeah, uh, you wouldn't think that going to do a PhD. <laughs> Uh, I wouldn't say that people who do a PhD are the most financially motivated. No, exactly right. I've gone from one extreme straight to the other. <laughs> Destined for a life of destitution now. So. <laughs> um, yeah, but then what made you want to get back into academia? Was there a certain a moment or was it just, yeah, I don't want to just be um, teaching this or flitting around from jobs anymore? I think I always deep down wanted to do a PhD um, but after 20 years of non-stop education like going from nursery to primary school to secondary school uh, to college straight to university to do a four-year course mm. I was done you know I just needed that break so it's kind of more like a gap year that got out of hand <laughs> um, and then uh yeah, I realized, okay, it's time to go back. After I got into the whole teaching thing, um, I realized that was just me, like trying to justify uh, not doing physics anymore. But then I realized actually, no, I do want to do this. So, um, yeah. so how was it uh, teaching in another country then? Yeah, it was really, really good. It's, I, I don't think I have the patience or uh, the motivation or the drive to be a teacher here. It's like the hardest job ever to even do it in in a country like China but um over there it was so much better because you get a lot of creative freedom to teach how you want as long as the kids get the grades by the end then it's then you can do what you like I mean I redesigned the entire um last three months of the curriculum to do more um uh, laboratory work and stuff and that was really really exciting so it was a really really fun job yeah oh um, well, would you consider teaching again? Or I don't know what you're planning on doing after your PhD, but... That's a good <laughs> question. Honestly, I have no idea what I'm doing after this PhD. Um, this was like the... I was like, I'm going to get a PhD and then the plan stopped there. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I would like to stay in the UK uh, long term, but after the PhD, obviously, there's a lot of opportunities to travel around um, with the postdocs that you do. So I would like to go somewhere for at least uh, two to three years after this and then probably move back to the UK to do whatever. But um, my partner also has itchy feet to get out. We, we actually met over in China. So um, we both have like the travel bug pretty, pretty bad. Um, and now we've been in the UK in Leicester for another three years and it'll be another year after this. So after that, we'll be like, okay, where are we going now? <laughs> yeah. That probably leads quite nicely into the question we ask all of our guests oh. while we're thinking about blue sky thinking and what else we could do. Um, so yeah, if you could be doing something else completely different, either in academia or outside of it, what would you want to do? 
Oh. I'm so sorry Any- I asked you this. <laughs> anything. Oh my goodness. Okay, so I, I've always wanted to be a weather girl, like on the TV. <laughs> like, you know, it, in the Midlands, it's sunny. It's that kind of thing. Oh, I always wanted to be that. It's kind of what put me down the meteorology path. And then I realized, actually, I'm just a scientist. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that'd probably be what I'd, I'd want to do. That's cool, like that. though. Yeah, that's, that's a good answer. <laughs> yeah. I think with the background as well, it was like, so yeah. here's the weather. Uh, <laughs> You're in us today. <laughs> it's windy on Neptune today. <laughs> With like methane showers. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the great dark spot is no longer there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, well, this has been a really fun episode. Thank you so much for coming on. That's all right. Thanks for having me. Yeah. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, and all the best for the rest of your PhD. Um, yeah. Um, if you'd like any more Earth and planetary science content, all of our links will be in the episode description or on the thumbnail currently. Um, but yeah, I think all that's left to say is thank you very much, Naomi. And thank you. Next week. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>